A couple of months ago, it was suggested from this pulpit that we go home and take off our clothes and look at ourselves in the mirror. Look at our bodies and realize their beauty, the beauty of every one of us, and acknowledge that body just as we see it that day as ours, our soul's address. We've begun this summer to talk about how to go about living our mission, kindling the flame of love and justice to nurture and heal ourselves, each other, and our world, nine aspects we've begun to contemplate and define. Three of those aspects target, describe the targets on which we wish to have an effect, ourselves, each other, and our world. Now, I was not privy to the discussions that resulted in our mission statement, but I believe there is a reason why the first target that we are asked to set alight is ourselves. And that is the thing we can't see even standing naked in front of the mirror. That fragile, broken heart that beats inside each one of us. None of us has an unblemished heart, not one. And it is only through that brokenness in ourselves that we can touch each other. And by touching each other, we can heal our world. And yet, we keep figuring out so many ways to keep from admitting the brokenness of that heart. Distract, deny, yes, I'm fine, thanks. Anything but look and accept. It's so hard to drop the mental tweaking to stop closing our eyes and conjuring up better visions. But why is that so hard? Why do we spend so much time, so much money, so much angst on what sociologist Irving Goffman called the presentation of the self in everyday life? Why are we so invested in making sure no one else sees what we're really like? Why are we so afraid of being found out? As far back as we can tell, humans have always been like that. We set standards, physical, social, emotional, spiritual standards, and we don't live up to them. And we're happy to point out the ways in which everybody else bungles it and desperate to cover up our own shortcomings. The great Oscar Wilde, near contemporary of ours in the scheme of human history, pointed out the futility of that kind of covering up. Every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, he said, and therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has one day to cry aloud from the housetops. Ominous, and he knew whereof he spoke, at the turn of the 20th century, he was one of Britain's most famous writers, and he was arrested and imprisoned for two years for the crime of homosexuality and died at the age of 46 from harsh treatment and infamy. Wilde's most famous work, The Picture of Dorian Gray, is precisely the story in spades of a man who makes a cover-up bargain with the devil so that it's his portrait in the attic that wrinkles and rots with age and corruption. 
while he himself walks about the streets, always young looking and beautiful. Now about 200 years before Wilde in the 1600s, there had been another great writer, John Bunyan, a Puritan, spiritual kin of the Pilgrim mothers and fathers who at that time were settling the Wampanoag land that would become Massachusetts. Bunyan, however, stayed in England. And like us, he lived in interesting times. There was plague, there was war, there was political chaos. During Bunyan's lifetime, the king was dragged off the throne and beheaded. The army dissolved the legislature and a dictator took over the government. Bunyan himself went to prison for 12 years for the crime of preaching the wrong religious doctrine and refusing to promise to stop. But while he was locked up, he wrote his own classic of world literature called The Pilgrim's Progress. In that work appear the words of our opening hymn this morning. And here's an interesting note. When Oscar Wilde was in prison, The Pilgrim's Progress and the Bible were the only books they were allowed to read. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a man called Christian, a man who would certainly never have taken his clothes off and looked at himself in the mirror because he was living with such a sense of impending doom that he can no longer work to the consternation of his family and friends. He has a literal pack of guilt loaded on his back and all he does is wander the fields, bowed down by this pack, wringing his hands and crying, what must I do to be saved? Now Bunyan couched all this in a very 17th century allegorical Protestant way of ascribing reasons for life's being the way it is. But everyone writes in the idiom of the time where he finds himself. So we can look at this metaphorically. I can speak only for myself, but I'm betting that there are a few people in this room who haven't spent an hour or two from time to time asking like Christian, what am I gonna do? Fortunately for him, a man comes along who we are told is called evangelist, who says to him, I can tell you what you need to do to be saved. Christian is all ears. Evangelist points away, across the trackless waste, Christian's been stumbling around into the murky distance. And he says, do you see yonder wicked gate? Christian point, peers out through the gloom and he says, no. Well then, says evangelist, do you see yonder shining light? Christian squints again as hard as he can and he says, I think I do. Okay, says evangelist, keep your eye on that light. Get over there as fast as you can and you'll find out what to do. So Christian sets off across the fields with his pack on his back in search of something he doesn't know what and he's not sure he can see. This is faith. Not that somewhere there's a hand to hold or someone to take the punishment he deserves or reward him for good behavior but that somehow he can stop pacing and head out with intention toward a goal. Now, spoiler alert, Christian does get over to the light and he does find the wicked gate and he does start the glorious journey on the straight and narrow path and it eventually leads him to the gates of heaven. And one of the first things that happens as he gets started on that journey is that the pack of guilty sins falls off his back 
it's gone. He can stand up straight and look out at the path ahead and see what's around him and start moving forward with energy and purpose. So what is it? What did he find at the very beginning of his journey that allowed that pack to fall off his back? Well, here's the last story. The sad irony is that it's the oldest yet, about 2,000 years old or thereabouts, and it comes from the Gospel of John. It's a famous story, and it's been told from this pulpit before, of the woman taken in adultery that is dragged out of her bed and brought before Jesus by a sort of refined lynch mob of educated scholars and temple priests. By our law, she ought to die, they scream. No due process here. They're actually hoping for a double whammy and entertaining public stoning, and they're hoping to trap Jesus into making a political faux pas so they can get rid of him. But Jesus is always too smart for them and totally unflappable in the face of a lynch mob. Fine, he says, you think she ought to die? Then let him who is without sin cast the first stone. A phrase so perfectly appropriate to quell self-righteous fury, it's entered the language. Everybody knows what to cast the first stone means. And it brings this group of earnest Torah scholars up short. Got me there? And one by one, off they slink and the riot stops. But that's not the end of the story. A few minutes later, Jesus looks up from what he's doing, and there's nobody else there but the woman. Well, he says, does no one condemn you? No, sir, she says, no one. And then Jesus speaks the words that for my money are the heart of the New Testament and the heart of our UU practice. As Jesus might have said, on this commandment hang all the law and the prophets. He says to the woman, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Now the word sin has been overlain with a lot of baggage in the past couple of thousand years. But like Bunyan, Jesus spoke in the idiom of his own time, or I should say the translators who gave us the King James Bible spoke in the idiom of theirs. And the Greek word for which they chose the translation sin is actually an archery term. It has to do with missing the mark. And St. Paul describes himself as being enslaved to this sin. No matter how hard he tries, unable to stop himself from missing the mark. What Jesus told the woman and what we are being asked to do through that story is the thing that makes us human. Choose. Stop being enslaved to our habitual, unquestioning, automatic reactions to the people and situations where we find ourselves. We are called to pause to listen, to be teachable, to recognize our own agency, to aim for the mark, to choose. I know it doesn't seem as though we have much agency these days when our babies are slaughtered in their classrooms, when people just out at religious services or the supermarket or a parade don't make it home again, when women and men are told that the formation of their own families is not up to them, no matter how dangerous the situation, and the people we've elected to help us won't do their jobs, when our own lives have turned upside down, 
when we feel helplessly on our own. But that's not the end. That's the start. Some of you may know the American Buddhist nun who goes by the pen name Pema Chodron. She writes, start with a broken heart. Just as Lennon and McCartney so many years ago sang, when the brokenhearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer. Broken hearts are not the end. They're where we start. Because life is a practice. We UUs know this. It isn't a set of beliefs, a list of rules, a ledger of standards that we repeatedly fail to live up to. Life is a practice. When we're beset on every side by monsters, outrages, disappointments, losses, when we're out of our depth and don't have enough information, when we make mistake after mistake, when all we want is for things to go back to being the way they used to be, when we finally and fully understand that there is no ground under our feet, that the only certainty that is that we're going to die and we don't know when, and our hearts are broken, then we are free, free to practice life, free to choose, free to learn how to become effective adults in a world full of suffering. We have plenty of help, the principles and all the resources described therein, the beloved community that surrounds and supports us right here every day. But we are free. The pack is off our backs. And we can wake up in the morning after all the chagrin, disappointment, and embarrassment of yesterday. Go to the mirror, look ourselves in the eye, and say, neither do I condemn you. Go, walk one path, your own path, kindle your own flame. We each carry our own burdens, but that faint struggling flame can heal ourselves, each other, and our world. Do you see yonder wicked gate? No. Well, then, do you see yonder shining light? I think I do. I think I do. May it be so. Blessed be and amen.